Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to this rare second edition of Tales from the Heart, a live podcast brought to you by the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Um, it is the second broadcast of the day. We were with you earlier uh, on a regularly scheduled event, and today we're coming back here to join you to discuss the new guidelines for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that were published by the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association earlier today. What we plan to do in this next hour uh, of a live podcast is to cover the feature areas in the guidelines document. And Dr. Martin Marin uh, was on the writing committee with uh, for the AHAACC. So he has been working on this document for probably a really long time, much longer than he probably wants to admit, um, but it's finally out now. So he's gonna give us some of his perspective. And we've asked Dr. Harry Lever to come back and join us to give us more of a clinical cardiology, HCM Center of Excellence uh, point of view as to how they might use these new guidelines and this advanced knowledge in the treatment of patients with HCM. So Harry, welcome back and Marty, happy Friday to you. Hi, Lisa. Hi, everybody from the HCM community that's tuning in. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to stop our share. So I just wanted to make sure that people knew why we were here and what we were here about. And uh, that was our little tagline. So um, the last time this document was um, released was 2011, I believe. So it's been about a decade since the guidelines were updated. And we know that that means things have changed, our knowledge has expanded. Um, what I do want you to explain, Marty, is just format real quickly. So there are two different classifications here that um, recommendations are given, and that is a class and a level. Can you tell us what the classes are and what levels are and what these numbers and letters mean? Sure. Sure. So a couple of things first, maybe just real quick. You know, I wanted to just take, take a second to, to thank um, and highlight the work that Steve Amon, you know, put in as the chair for this ACC AHA clinical practice document in HCM. He was the chair, a tremendous amount of work in organizing this, did an amazing job of leading the group over more than a year in, in putting the document together. And then the co-chair, Stephen Mittal from Sick Children's Hospital in uh, uh, Toronto, uh, also a shout out did a great job, amazing, um, helping put this document together. So um, for those that may not be familiar, as you were just saying, this is a, a, a document that previously has come out every 10 years, not just in HCM, but in all areas of cardiology, there are often clinical practice doc, doc, guidelines and documents that come out. They all follow the kind of the same or similar format where you've got a chair and a co-chair, and then you've got usually a, a group of about 20 individuals who formulate a, a writing committee. And it's that's the group that, and those are usually experts um, in different areas uh, of HCM and also cardiology that contribute over about a year in time to putting together these recommendations. And, the, and, and as I was saying, the recommendations follow a certain format, whether it's the HCM guidelines or any other guidelines uh, that the ACCAHA put out. And that is that in general, when a topic is discussed, there's two things that, that sort of get done at the end of the day. Um, one is a strength of the recommendation, the management recommendation, uh, which is usually uh, 
classified as a one, a two A, a two B, and those are the strength of the management recommendation has certain language to it. So, you know, it may be that that X, Y, and Z is recommended. That's the strongest, or it could be that this treatment is reasonable to do. That's a little bit less strength of evidence. That's like a two A. So there's sort of typical verbiage based on the level of strength of the recommendation that the committee has decided on for that particular management issue. And then the second part that comes with the strength of the recommendation is the level or the quality of the evidence that supports that strength of recommendation. And that's usually A, B, 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 N, R. There's different classifications for that. And that's based on the class, the, 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 um, the quality of the evidence is based on what has been published previously in, in different studies that would support the strength of that recommendation. And that can be clinical trials, and it can also be expert opinion as well. So that's generally how it works. And then with the recommendations that, that go with a specific management topic, come text that help to you know, put into context the recommendation, usually over several different paragraphs. So if something is given a number of one, that would indicate that it's the highest level of evidence we have. If something is given two, it pretty much means we don't have large scale clinical trials and it is expected to be you know, helpful. So there's a 2A and 2B. And then three, there's two ways that three is classified, no benefit or harm. Right. Correct? That's right. That's right. Okay. Those, are, those are your level so, of strengths of the recommendation. That's right. That's the strength. And we're gonna leave it for there for now. And what I'm gonna do is there's, there's a very long document, it's about 80 pages long. And then there is a shorter executive summary. So I'm just gonna kind of use the executive summary for the purposes of this conversation today and say that they're in different sections. And I'm going to ask if you wanna comment on any you, you know significant changes in each section. And the first section's really a new section and that's called shared decision-making. How did that come about as being a new feature in this particular document? And what do you think about it? Yeah, so I think the reason that, that, that shared, first of all, shared this idea of shared decision-making, which I think you guys discussed, you and Harry had also discussed earlier today, but shared decision-making, which is a um, sort of typical kind of strategy um, that is employed not just in HCM, but in all different areas of, of medicine, was part of the last guidelines. But you know, I think it, 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 it was given greater weight here than it had been in the past. And you know what I mean by that specifically is that I think we've become increasingly recognized that particularly in a disease like HCM, uh, which is very heterogeneous, there's a lot of diversity to, to the disease expression as well as diversity to the natural history of it. And also it's a disease where because it's relatively uncommon, um, we don't have a lot of what goes on in other areas of cardiology, prospective clinical trials, which other areas of cardiology ha have depended enormously on to provide very concrete levels of evidence, okay? And so all of those factors, you know, make it a sort of a situation where there can often be in any one management area of HCM, a certain amount of gray as far as what to do. You know, it may not be absolutely 100% clear in an individual patient whether they should have an ICD or whether they should have a myectomy. 
um, or whether they should go on anticoagulation for stroke prophylaxis. And because there is a certain amount of gray in some of these clinical decision-making areas, that is a role for what we call shared decision-making where the physician and the provides the patient <clears throat> pros and cons and a certain level of evidence about what we know about that area to empower that patient and educate the patient as best that the, as best as we can to allow that patient to be a partner in a way in the decision making process to decide ultimately with the doctor cardiologist how to resolve a decision in the gray area that and so that's that that's why we put a little bit more emphasis on shared decision making because of these gray areas which exist in HCM will continue to exist in HCM probably won't go away and um, uh, really allow for I think the the, the ability to resolve decision making with since there's really no other way to do it sometimes in those situations so that's that's why we spent a little bit more time and weight on shared decision making as an important aspect of the patient physician uh, interaction in HCM really across a lot of the different air management areas that come up in HCM. Which leads us, <clears throat> and Harry, you and I talked about this this morning, so I'm not going to go back there. People can go back and listen to our discussion on that because we want to move along here. But that brings us to area number two, which is multidisciplinary HCM centers, which I would have much preferred the title of HCMA Recognized Center of Excellence Model, <laughs> but I don't think AHA was going to do that for us. Um, but we have shared decision-making followed by multidisciplinary HCM programs. Why was it important for that to be the second item in this document or section in this document? Why does Center of Excellence Care matter? Well, I mean, you know, I think that, you know, the, that the answer to that is that, you know, for, you know, a complex, relatively uncommon heart disease like HCM, um, you know, what's happened over decades is that, you know, certain areas of uh, certain expertise for this disease um, is be, can become limited. Not everybody can see, uh, uh, you know, an a lot of patients with this disease, nor can a lot of people often become experts in myectomy or experts in alcohol ablation. So in other words, it's a disease that, you know, by virtue of its, you know, its nature of being relatively uncommon and, 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 and also on top of that complex and also involving a lot of different disciplines within cardiology, um, it's necessary and has become more necessary in a way um, to at times have the ability for patients to receive evaluation and care at centers that have the kind of dedicated expertise in the evaluation and the procedural dedication to provide those patients the best opportunity for the best outcomes, okay? And I, I think everybody has, has realized that this HCM is an example of that in cardiology. Um, and so there was emphasis in this document, maybe even more than 2011 on, you know, underscoring the importance of referral to the HCM centers for that reason. And I will take a minute to say as well, before you jump in, that um, we wouldn't be having that discussion about 
the importance of centers of excellence really without your work um, and, 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 and the dedication that you have had over now several decades uh, of your vision really of creating these centers coast to coast to provide, as you knew right away, a chance for patients everywhere in this country to have, or not to be very far from, a chance to be seen and evaluated at a center with expertise in HCM. And your ability to assemble and organize and lead you know, that group, which is now close to, I, I don't know, 40 um, or so, Mm -hmm. Starting out, by the way, for those listening, you know, it, it was probably 10 years ago, six or seven centers um, for which Harry at the Cleveland Clinic um, has always been part of as well. But, uh, you know, the, the, the expansive nature that you have led there is the reason that we had that discussion. And had that not happened, we wouldn't have been able to have that discussion. So um, those recommendations really reflect your work. Um, and I think they were underscored appropriately. Yeah. Your, your and, and, and your team's work, of course, at the HCMA. Um, you simply would not have had that section. It wouldn't have been able to be a reality without that. So I just wanted to thank you, you know, for that. Well, we're happy to have wonderful partners that we were able to build this up with. And um, I think it does speak a great deal to our collective work <clears throat> all of our Center of Excellence partners all over the country and the world, that this model works because it was a collaborative development between the patient community and the clinical community and the research community. We all worked together to decide what we needed on a regular basis for our care, what we need at specialty level, and we've designed that. I do believe that there is going to be an increased need um, for additional services to HCM programs based on these guidelines for emotional support. Shared decision-making is not something that one goes into, you know, casually. These are very big decisions for these families and they will be anxiety producing and the HCMA's work and support is going to be more important. But I believe that we're gonna probably need some more mental health professionals tied in with our programs to ensure patients have all of the support that they need and they don't feel overwhelmed when they're making decisions either for themselves or for a family member or both because right. those decision pathways could be different. <clears throat> Excuse I'll, me. I'll also mention too, you know, just on that note, I just wanna mention that you know, since the 2011 document, you know, there, there, there has been evidence, actual data that we didn't have back in 2011 to support, you know, the importance of these centers of excellence. And one example of that, one, you know, important example of that is myectomy and alcohol ablation. You know, there was two a big study published several years ago, um, you know, that showed that outcomes, mortality and morbidity were significantly greater if you have a myectomy or alcohol ablation at a center that's not an HCM center of excellence, it doesn't have a lot of expertise or less expertise, less volume than a um, center dedicated to the disease. And that kind of evidence, you know, you, you know, you just simply cannot ignore. And so that was another reason to um, you know, take this issue of centers of excellence to a more stronger level of evidence and recommendation than it had been in 2011. 
Mary, any comments on that before I get on to the imaging portion of the guidelines? No. Okay. So the first area. Um, Just one comment though. Sure, go ahead. On this shared decision, I think we should not abdicate our responsibility though. I mean, when we really see something that needs to be done, I think we got to really tell the patient what we really believe and not, you know, leave it all to them. I mean, I think we've got to, you know, I think we got to not be afraid to tell people what we really think. Yeah, that's that's so important. And that came up a number of times when we were putting that aspect of the document together. Harry's absolutely right. We we can't stop being doctors. I mean, right. you you gotta give you gotta give patients your recommendation at the end of the day about what you think is best for them. We are still doctors. Right. The shared decision making doesn't take that away. What it does is it allows the patient to also have a you know an important contribution to that decision making. But at the end of the day, we've got to be doctors. And that's absolutely correct. Okay. So the first critical area of the guidelines talks about family screenings and imaging. So there's not really much of a change. And I'm going to kind of change up the, the way we're going to do this now. There's not much changing in the terms of um, evaluate recommendations for initial diagnosis and workup. If there is left ventricular hypertrophy that's suspected of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the workup will continue until you can prove or disprove HCM. And that starts with imaging. And there's a very long list of what imaging should be done and how and when you should use, you know, just a regular echocardiogram. And then when you can use transesophageal echo and when we can move on to MRI. So I think the last version of the guideline did not have data on MRI, it was early. Um, and now it's in the guidelines. Marty, you want to talk a little bit about how the guidelines have changed in regards to imaging? Yeah, I think the, the biggest area there um, compared to, again, 2011 is, is the weight given to, to incorporating you know, MRI into the initial and, and also follow-up evaluations of, of patients with HCAB. It was part of the, the 2011 guidelines. It, it, was, it was talked about, it was in there, but it, it didn't have the same level of evidence and therefore the same weight given to it as it does now, which is that almost, you know, you know essentially almost all, the recommendation is that essentially almost all patients should have an MRI as part of their initial evaluation, you know, for a number of reasons. One is to ensure that the uh, wall thickness measurement is as accurate as it should be. And that can sometimes impact management because there sometimes can be differences in the max wall thickness measurement between echo and MRI. MRI provides uh, a very precise measurement of that issue and that can impact management um, depending on the situation. Two is that um, it can also impact uh, decision-making regarding risk of sudden death based on the amount of scar that's in the heart muscle. That is a, um, uh, an important issue that cannot be derived by echocardiography. So scar burden, which has um, become more and more uh, evidence behind that as an important marker for future risk of arrhythmias in HCM, and therefore was also part of the rationale for putting greater weight on an MRI as part of the initial evaluation of HCM patients. And also, MRI can characterize parts of the HCM structure that 
may be missed or underappreciated with, with echo, including, for example, LV apical aneurysms, thinning of the apex, which um, sometimes can be missed because of that location by echo, but when it's seen, um, can change management of the patient. Um, and then fourth is that, you know, sometimes MRI can, can identify certain things structurally in the heart that raise suspicion that the patient's diagnosis may not be HCM, may actually be another, what we call phenocopy of HCM. Those are other diseases that look like HCM, but are not. And MRI can be helpful there as well. So, so for all those reasons, you know, the level of MRI in the guidelines went up. And the percentage of scar or the presence of scar is a risk factor now. It, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, so, yeah, so switching for a second then, so, yeah, so when we're talking about risk of identifying high-risk patients for sudden death and, and therefore potentially candidates for, for ICD, Yes, the amount of scar is part of that decision-making uh, strategy, more so than 2011. But it's um, it was a two, I believe. It, what we it, the, the evidence for it was a two B. Okay, so I mean it can it can be helpful, but it's not the strongest of the markers. So there is now a a, a section for. Um, um, CT scan in HCM. When, when are we using CTs in HCM? That's not really been addressed very in a very detailed way in the past. Yeah, so CAT scan has kind of two roles, cardiac CT um, in HCM that were probably more, more important now than they were in 2011, again, because of the technology and the level of evidence. And, and those are, one is that um, CT is a way that you can look at the coronary arteries, um, the you know to look for coronary artery disease. Okay, and a lot of HCM patients that we see, you know, they can have chest pain as a symptom of HCM, but sometimes you're not sure if that chest pain is from HCM, or it could be from coronary artery disease. Okay, and um, CT is a very nice modality to evaluate an HCM patient for coronary artery disease um, because other, other modalities have uh, different types of limitations for, de for determining that than, than CT. So I think there was a feeling among the committee that to rule out coronary artery disease, CT angiography was, a it was an important modality to use. And then it can also be used to assess morphology like wall thickness, other abnormalities of the LV morphology too, like aneurysms, um, degree of wall thickness, et cetera, when a patient can't have an MRI, for example, okay? So there's that scenario. Not that that comes up that much, but that is another alternative option there for that. We've used it over the years, but it's just never been formally Correct. explained, I don't think. Right. And those are the reasons. <laughs> Harry, any comments on that so far? I think, if, but if, I think if I, if I wanted, if I, if I was told I could, had to pick one, only one of those tests, I think I'd still go with an MRI mm, okay. because, of, because looking for the scar, I think that's really become very, I think that's pretty important these days. I mean, yeah. and I think the other thing we've got to ask ourselves is 
how often should we do an MRI scan? We've, we've seen some progression in a, over a three or four or five year period with, of the scar yeah. in a few patients. And I've often wondered about that, you know, should we, we you know. Well, what do the guidelines say about frequency, Marty? We, we said in there that it's a great, so first of all, it's a great point. Um, and this is how we addressed it. I, I, I'd have to pull the document up to get the exact wording, but what, what basically what we said was that it was reasonable to repeat the MRI in longitudinal follow-up of a patient on an every three to five year basis, or if something else comes up clinically that you know deserves the MRI earlier than that, okay? So Harry's judgment based on his experience and not being on the guidelines committee, that three to five year window that you just mentioned yeah. is exactly well, what they came up with. I think he's absolutely right about that. I think it's too much to do it every year in a stable patient, but three to five is reasonable. That's the, I think those are the words we used. So heart rhythm assessment is the next area. And, you know, we're talking about halters, EKGs, zyopatches, long-term monitoring and uh, the like, no big changes there. Well, not really. I mean, I'll just say that one, one area that we, I don't know about struggled with, but that was um, discussed was, you know, there, there is now a lot of newer technology for longer term ambulatory monitoring that's available now that was not available in 2011. Okay. And when we're talking about ambulatory monitoring, we're talking about monitors to look at heart rhythms that typically have been 24 to 48 hour duration in time, okay? But we've got new, and so the data about the importance of the monitor in helping decide about risk of a patient for sudden death comes from 24 to 48 hour duration time. But now it's so much easier and so much more convenient and, and so much less of a, of a hassle to put on one of the newer monitors that doesn't have the, the bulkiness, the wires. Yeah, exactly. And, and those monitors can easily go for a week or two before you take them off. So we're getting, so the opportunity to get a lot more monitoring time is now easily accessible with the technology. But what we don't have yet is whether that increase in monitoring time is more helpful in helping make the management decisions than the 24 to 48 hour monitor. We just don't know the answer to that question yet. So we left that a little bit and a little bit ambiguous about which time duration to choose. I, I think that though, I think these devices that uh, plug into uh, iPhones are important to think about. Um, I, I don't think, think we talked about direct to consumer type evaluations happen in the guidelines yeah. like a live core cardio mobile or anything that we're talking about wearable yeah, prescribable. We're wearable. yeah we're talking about wearable in the in the guidelines but but harry's point about yeah what do you right. call them patient uh direct to consumer patient yeah. evaluations right. Or, you know. right it's an important issue but it wasn't addressed in the guidelines it was not but right. i think that's something that we need to think about i mean i've had a few patients where i've found things. I, as a matter of fact, I had a woman from the Czech Republic that was in persistent atrial fib with an uncontrolled heart rate, and she needed to get over to us for surgery, and I was able to adjust her medicine all the way to the Czech Republic using 
one of those devices. Yeah. Maybe for the next iteration, although the guidelines aren't going to be 10 years off next time, there'll be shorter intervals. And that's something that we should put on the list for consideration in the future. Genetic can, I make, can I just make one point about that? It's important. It's, you just reminded me. The guidelines have historically been every 10 years in print. Right. There is a you know, movement by the ACC and AHA to make these more, um, I don't know the term, alive, uh, fluid, um, and the opportunity to make changes to certain parts of the guidelines as evidence arises to support those changes before a 10-year period. So meeting right. every year or two to change them, they would be changes that would be made to the document online, but still would reflect new data. So, so they may become more fluid than they've been before. Just to, I think that's brilliant. I think that's desperately needed, and I think the patient community will benefit from that. Totally. I think everybody. That's, that. that's yep. very wise. Yeah. Um, the next area that is in the guidelines is genetics. Now that the cost has come down and the protections are in place for those with genetic disorders. Um, I think there's a more wide ranging utilization of genetic testing, but there's still no change in the prognostic value of genetic testing that we can really look to. Is that a good assessment of the genetic testing aspect? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, right. I think it's the strength lies in the ability to do family assessment and also to, to, to help with diagnosis in certain situations. Um, but not prognosis. That's right. That's right. One area, you know, one area though, just to just one, just to underscore one point there, um, that may be a little bit more new compared to 2011 was there is recommendation in there now about highlighting the fact that the classification of these mutations can change. Yep. From pathogenic to, to convert from pathogenic to a, v, a variant of uncertain significance so downgrade them and they can go the other way too. They can go from, right. So there's a, again, I don't remember how we said it, but there was a recommendation to, uh, to either physicians or patients to, you know, to, to revisit that, their genetic testing results on a periodic basis for that reason. And at the HCMA, we've been saying that for 10 years and it's been on our checklist. So I'm glad that we're all on the same page there. That variant reanalysis needs to be done on a regular basis. And possibly additional genetic testing should be considered every so often when new panels become available. Right. We're going to take a pause here and learn about some of the people who've helped make this podcast possible. We would like to thank our sponsors. Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. Please remember to sign up for the HCM Strong Tour, Big Hearted Warriors Unite. Our virtual tour will begin September 3rd and include dates September 17th, October 8th, October 10th, October 24th, October 29th, November 12th, December 3rd, and December 10th. A few other events will be added check the updated registration information at 4hcm.org. Hope to see you at one of our upcoming meetings. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. 
Learn more about these initiatives at ohcm.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4HCM.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4HCM.org to learn more today. And let's continue the conversation. Now, where were we? The next area of the guidelines um, are, are really important ones, and that's the sudden cardiac arrest assessment and prevention area. So what changes have occurred here? Because there are a couple of significant additions to this classification of higher risk. And specifically the um, wall measurement issues have slightly resolved a bit and and we've come down to 2.8 or 28. Ejection fraction is a consideration. Left apical aneurysm is a consideration. How did this happen? Why, why are there new areas that people should be protected from cardiac arrest? Yeah, so I think the the committee felt for risk stratification that that we should still remain and stick to um, a, a a strategy that is that relies on the presence of one or more major risk factor marker, okay, as the first step. In, in, in assessing a patient's risk for sudden death. And those major markers have evolved since 2011. You know, there's been new evidence for some new ones and there's been some decisions to remove one that was part of the PRAS guidelines, actually. You wanna discuss what that was that was taken sure. off? So what was taken off and essentially completely de-emphasized or eliminated was abnormal blood pressure response to exercise. And I think everybody felt that the evidence to begin with for that as a risk marker was weak and not as predictive as all the other major markers. And not everybody was getting exercised and there was a lot of variability in what that measurement meant when you got it, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, the decision was to remove it. So it's not a major marker anymore or a minor marker. So we've taken one off and we've added ejection fraction, left apical aneurysm. So can you discuss a little bit about what about ejection fraction is important in this case? Yeah, I think that there was, you know, I think there was agreement or consensus on the idea that, you know, systolic function is important. What we call ejection fraction, a measure of the heart contractility. Was it important marker of increased risk in HCM when the ejection fraction was below 50%, okay? Which is, you know, for this disease, a real relative decrease in pump function, okay? And there was, there's been two kind of big studies that had emerged in the last year or two to kind of provide the evidence for 
what we call ends, HCM was systolic dysfunction, EF of less than 50% as, as, as being a patient who would be at increased risk as well for sudden death, ventricular arrhythmias. And so that's also a group that develops heart failure often at a young age and uh, needs advanced heart failure treatment a lot. And so there was a lot of the thought that you know, pr protecting those patients period from sudden death with a device was the right thing to do. But of course, you're also providing them a bridge to more definitive heart failure treatment by doing that as well. So that's why that emerged as a major marker now. So the markers have been identified and there's also some communication in the document, I'll just call it, about the use of the European risk scores. And how, how are we supposed to take our, the US-based risk factors and the ESC risk score tool to aid in decision-making? So the Europeans in their last guidelines developed a risk score. You, know, you would impute a number of variables into your iPhone and then it would generate based on those variables you know, a five-year risk of sudden death. And that risk would be then assigned as well to a management consideration like ICD, no ICD, yes ICD, or maybe ICD. And so the way we, you know, the, the, the committee felt a couple of things. One was that the risk score, you know, was limited in some degree because it doesn't incorporate new markers like apical aneurysm or scarring by MRI or EF, okay? And so for that reason, and, and, then, and then on top of that, there was also, I think, a, a, a fair amount of strong feeling that, you know, the score from the, from the risk score should not be assigned to a definitive management recommendation, okay, as well. That was really not the right way to, 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 to really handle that. It, it, and, and so for those reasons, the risk score was significantly de-emphasized as a primary tool to decide about ICD or not, okay? What we agreed on and compromised on though was that the risk score provides some, you know, some reasonable assessment of an individual patient's per year risk of sudden death. For some patients, that type of information can be important to help them make a decision about an ICD, okay? Right. And so for that reason, um, we incorporated that the, the, the per year risk as part of, as, as something that you could consider to incorporate into the decision-making after you first decide about risk based on the major markers, okay? Okay, so there's a little bit of language in here that I think might still become a bit problematic from time to time in certain families. So we've talked about the markers and now it's this decision time for ICD. Yep. And the terminology has changed here slightly. Sudden death judged definitively or likely attributed to HCM in a first degree or close relative. How would one define a close relative? Well, we How will an insurance company define a close relative? We left that intentionally a little bit open because, you know, we, we, we recognize that, you know, there can be situations that can arise where, you know, the, there may be some weight given 
to sudden death due to HCM in one or more first or second degree relatives in, in a certain kind of family, you know? And so, you know, in order to allow the enormous, as you can imagine, the enormous different com potential combinations that one could see relative to family history, they could still be important. And that's where judgment comes into play, the physician judgment, um, that we, we chose that language because there was no other way to precisely define it. And we have finally discussed in the guidelines, children in ICDs. And I, my, my appreciation to the pediatric cardiologists on the team for this one, because we needed a little bit more guidance on the kids. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about kids and devices? Well, I think, you know, the, the um, you know, first of all, there were, I think, a substantial, substantially greater number of pediatric cardiologists that were part of this writing committee than the 2011 which was great because that voice um, was really, as you were just saying, was really important in addressing, you know, some of these really complicated areas that come up in HCM in children. And of course, one of those is, you know, the device question and risk stratification. Um, I think that, you know, it still remain, you know, there, there, there's still um, a lot of weight given in the, in, in children to, um, you know, really balancing the issues of complications of devices put in early versus benefit, because that has to be weighed in a different way, you know, certainly in, in the, compared to most adults, okay? We're talking about long, much longer time that a device could create a complication, including <clears throat> um, lead fractures, infections, uh, et cetera. And so, I think the language that's in there about children reflects that kind of conversation um, that needs to happen when, whenever you're deciding about devices in young, in young people. And so there was probably more of that there now than there was in 2011, essentially. That was probably one of the big differences. And device type, whether we're dealing with a transvenous, an SICD, a biventricular device. There's a little bit more guidance, but it's still a little bit dealer's choice, it appears. Yeah, I think it's in there about the subcutaneous, which is the newer version of the ICD that doesn't have a lead within the vein. It's, and so, we, you know, I think we, we were limited a little bit in how strong we could be about choices of devices because there just has been limited amount of data about the sub-Q in specifically in HCM. And so we could only, you know, go so far in how strong we could recommend, you know, the device in certain situations. So that's why, you know, it, 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 was, it is the way it is right now. So, uh, Harry, any comments um, on sudden cardiac arrest assessment well, changes? One of the things I, I've always been a little careful about is if you have a there's a family history of sudden death you have to look at the other members of course but not not because one sibling gets an ICD doesn't mean all of them need it and you've got to look very carefully at and treat them as individual patients and make you know looking at the anatomy how much scar and and all that kind of stuff and I think that that's something that probably before the MRI people were a little more, well, somebody's got it, we'll give it to all of them. You don't want to necessarily do that. Yeah. And I think this goes back to item two, which is high volume care matters. 
and that shared decision making with somebody who's knowledgeable and I think part of where I think there's going to be a little bit of anxiety among some individuals um, in that shared decision making in this specific area shared decision making also does mean shared responsibility to a certain degree and that that's really hard especially for a parent making a decision for a child and a young adult versus an older adult making decisions for their own long-term survival potentially. These are really complicated issues and I'm, I'm really glad that we've organized our support group system online and that's gonna be running soon so we can help deflect some of the anxiety that might be associated with some of these decisions. The next area of the guidelines is management, um, mostly drug management we're talking about now and, and, and uh, procedures. So the first area is for recommendation for obstructive patients. Um, There's a lot of hubbub and hope about therapeutics that are on pathway to come to us soon. They are not in this document for those who are watching because there's no data yet available to talk about them. So don't go looking for the document on trial drugs because you're not going to see anything there. But what is new here, Marty? Is there anything new or is it just a little nuancing of what we already knew? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of, it's probably more than anything, a little bit of nuancing compared to 2011, you know, related to um, the drugs and the invasive septal reduction therapy. I think, you know, perhaps one point to to make, you know, that maybe a little, that was a little different than 2011 is a little bit greater emphasis placed on considering some patients with obstructive HCM a little bit earlier as candidates for invasive therapies um, than the traditional drug refractory class three, okay? Um, You know, it's probably a 2A or 2B recommendation. It's not a one, but um, it, it was raised because there was feeling among the, the committee, I think rightfully so, that you know, there are some patients that probably would benefit for a number of different reasons in earlier myectomy than waiting. And, and you could make the case that, that those areas include maybe preventing you know, certain types of atrial fibrillation, depending on circumstances. When, when, the, when it's very clear that drug therapy is, is just not gonna work, um, based on certain types of anatomy, it may be reasonable. It's also reasonable when some patients want it, you know, patients get to decide. And if patient choice is that they really want to move forward with a definitive option for relief of obstruction, you know, they should be given that opportunity. And so those kind of, those kind of situations are now kind of part of the guidelines where they weren't before. Okay. Um, the other section here regarding is, is getting into the invasive therapies. Um, still learning my way through the new numbering system. I've only had it in my hands for you know a couple hours now. Um, so now we're talking about when to go to surgery. And it seems like the bar is changed here. I won't say it's come down a lot. I just think it's changed position slightly in terms of who should be considered for surgery and when. And it's not solely based upon being highly symptomatic and getting that bad before surgery becomes an option. I think there's some room here because 
high volume surgery centers have really good outcomes. And right. there's a critical message here that high volume matters, referral, referring, referring uh, uh, relationships should be maintained by lower volume centers and community doctors to high volume centers for surgery. You wanna talk about how this section changed a little bit, Marty? Well, I think you nailed it there. I mean, I, you know, I think that, you know, like I just was saying, I mean, I think there's a little bit greater weight to considering surgery earlier in the course in some patients, you know, based on a number of different kind of factors uh, that a patient may have because the outcomes are so good and the risk at experienced high volume centers is so low. I mean, if you look at, you know, places like Cleveland and Mayo and I think Tufts too, you know, you're looking at, you know, operative mortality for the procedure that is, you know, less than 0.4%. I mean, you're talking about incredibly low risk for huge benefit. And I think we just felt that it was time to start emphasizing a little bit more the opportunity for patients to, with shared decision-making, engage in decisions that allow them to potentially pursue these treatments earlier in their course than they may have before. That, that's the bottom line. And I think that's great. The next area is about the non-obstructives. Um, what I'm struck by in this section of the guidelines is that all of the level of evidence here is C. It's, it's like, we spent all this time on obstructive patients and the non-obstructives too. So we're um, consensus basically on how to manage this group of patients. Um, the good news is we're on the page. The non-obstructives have entered the room. And I believe by the time we get to the next iteration of this document or an update of it, hopefully we'll have some more data on the non-obstructive population. Um, there is a greater emphasis on getting the non-obstructives evaluated in a timely manner to ensure that they have an opportunity to get to a transplant center. And I believe that these guidelines, just in the changes that have been made here, and Marty, the work you and I did with UNOS a few years back to help HCM patients get properly identified for transplant opportunities and, and listed appropriately, we'll take our number. If you go back to the first paper you did on UNOS, uh, the, the UNOS registry and HCM, we were 1%. Yep. We're now 4% almost. Right. Right. And I think we can maybe get to 6% when we grow up. But I don't know that we'll go much past the 6% line. Right. But um, I think that's a, a really good change in, in the, the trajectory of the guidelines. Any comments there? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, um, you know that I, I think... I think we recognize that, that the non-obstructive patients in some ways represent the biggest unmet treatment need that we have in the disease. Um, lots of good therapies for obstructive, symptomatic obstructive HCM, not so many really for non-obstructive. Um, and I think we highlight that as a, an area uh, to, to, that we hope that, that will, will change and that there needs to be focus on. Um, but you're right. I mean, the major point right now with that said is to really, um, you know, be, be proactive in evaluating the, the symptomatic of non-obstructive patient for earlier consideration to advanced heart failure therapies like transplant if they're, um, 
you know, if they're if they're symptomatic, you know, by using a number of objective measures to 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 help there. The other point I'll also make too is that there was a little bit more evidence for biventricular pacing as a device treatment for heart failure symptoms in non-obstructive HCM patients who have a left bundle branch block or a wide QRS complex on their ECG, okay? So in the guidelines, as you know, different than 2011, there's more weight given to considering that as a treatment perhaps earlier than not, um, since there isn't a lot of good efficacy with drugs and there isn't anything after that. So <clears throat> that's another point I think is worth mentioning. Uh, there, as far as drugs are concerned, these days we've got to be very careful where the drugs are coming from and who's making them. And that probably wasn't in the guidelines. But there's a real bad problem with stuff coming in from overseas, particularly metoprolol succinate coming from India. And uh, I think you got to be carvedilol, you got to be have the same problem. I've had patients that all I did was switch the manufacturer and they did better. One of the manufacturers had uh, five recalls last year of, of, you know, of different different drugs, and you know, and they uh, wasn't all the ones we use in, in Hokum, but there's there's one of them that's got a, a bad reputation, and we've we've also seen it with tacrolimus where they it doesn't dissolve properly. So people need to be aware of that. And I think if we have the good guidance on which drugs we need, our next stop is to work with the FDA and regulators to ensure the quality of the drugs that our community gets and uh, beyond the scope of the guidelines, but not beyond the scope of the HCMA. The next area talks about atrial fibrillation. Um, any real big changes there, Marty? I didn't see anything that really struck me as new, different, innovative, just refinement. Yeah, just again, emphasizing, you know, the really important point of having a low threshold, low bar for recommending blood thinners for patients with atrial fibrillation and HCM given the high stroke rate. Um, yeah, I think that's, that was probably the, one of the biggest, you know, points that was also part of the prior guidelines, but um, again, emphasized it here. Yeah. Um, so then we talk about patients with um, ventricular arrhythmias, um, different medical management, um, ablation techniques for both atrial and ventricular arrhythmias. And then there's the entire area of advanced heart failure where I kind of jumped ahead a little bit on the non-obstructive part. Let's talk about that. Um, the use of LVADs when appropriate for anatomy is in there. Um, earlier assessments for failure, that's great. And then we get into lifestyle and we're, we're rounding, we're rounding the, the corner here. Although we didn't go through the full 70 page document, we're just doing the highlight version. I just wanted to give everybody like the potpourri what's here. Um, lifestyle for HCM, moderate exercise, good. I think we've all agreed upon that for a long time, but then we have the change, which Harry and I talked about this morning. And I suspect that these changes on shared decision-making regarding competitive athletics are probably gonna find their way to a courtroom near somebody soon, because I think we're gonna have some conversations about patient says yes, doctor says okay, and school system, uh, 
sports team says no and we're going to be at locked head so that's going to be fun could be could be yeah i mean uh i think that was probably one of the most challenging you know areas of the document um and doesn't mean it's a bad argument to have or a bad problem to have but i, I think it's still just going to lead to a lot of confusion for a while could be i think that's that's a possible outcome yep is there anything else in lifestyle that really changed? Uh, you know, I don't think there were any other that I can remember striking changes that that are worthy of discussion at the moment. I can't, but I can't remember. There was a, you know, there was a lot of um, discussion on different areas, but 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 it would be stuff that I think you'd probably expect. I don't think there was anything surprising there. Okay, but low intensity exercise, great. Even low intensity competitive is okay. Um, it's just that high level intensity. It's a 2B, it's a C, you know, so it's it's going to yeah, be decisions. Yeah, and it says in there too that, you know, you know that 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 is part of the conversation that should have, that, that that you would be having with the athlete, HCM athlete is that there is a increase in risk here, okay? It's difficult to quantify that risk because that's probably impossible to do for any individual patient, but the patients need to know as a mandatory part of that conversation that engaging in organized competitive sports with HCM, you know, is associated with some increase in risk for sudden death was there much discussion among the group pediatric versus adult in this decision making no no nope the guidelines you know the only i think the only thing else that was part of that recommendation was the recognition that there are as opposed to almost any other medical decision making situation in this one there is a third party that is involved, okay? That often uh, is involved in, in, in making the final decision about eligibility. Um, and in fact, you were talking about the courts. The courts have already decided that. There is legal precedent for the universities to have the opportunity to have really the final say about eligibility uh, of student athletes, okay? So we, we had to, rightfully so, recognize that this decision-making about participating in competitive sports cannot ignore the third party's role. And so that also was part of the, um, the, the guideline, that aspect. We shall see what that one turns out. An area that I'm a little, it's nice that it's here, but I think it could have been more comprehensive. Recommendations for occupations yeah. uh, and HCM. There's some language in there about, you know, CDL availability for those without ICDs. Thankfully, that has changed a bit. So that might be helpful for some. CDL is what? A, a commercial driver's license. Oh. So there was a period of time where anybody with a diagnosis of HCM was precluded from having a CDL. Um, and now they've changed their guidelines slightly and you can, as long as you have a, a, um, 
an evaluation from a physician that says that they feel that you're at low risk, but if you get an ICD, you cannot. I mean, these are people who are driving tanker trucks and gas, you know, they, they, can, they can be a public safety risk. Uh, potentially airlines they address and um, it's a level 2b and a c for patients can consider manual labor heavy lifting uh, and physically exerting jobs that would be a shared decision between the physician and the patient um, that's still a little ambiguous for certain jobs and and it's still going to be an issue that we deal with but we'll figure that out. Then we talk about pregnancy in HCM and we have some really nice data here for the first time, which is really nice in a comprehensive way. So um, bravo to the team for being pretty cohesive on that. And last but not least, and that's patients with comorbidities um, and how to manage comorbidities uh, to a certain degree is, is addressed. So there's some nuanced differences. There's some formatting differences. There's some different voices being heard from in this uh, guidelines document. And uh, Marty, what do, you, what do you think were the most important take homes after working on this document all this time and it's finally here? What do you think people really need to know about it? Well, you put me on the spot there. I did. I didn't warn you on that one. <laughs> to summarize it, I mean, I think that it's a document that emphasizes, you know, the patient voice, you know, with shared decision making in a way that is probably stronger than previously. Um, that doesn't mean, like Harriet and I were saying, that the physicians um, are not making the, the recommendations that we should, we are, but the patients get to also with being fully informed, engaged in decision-making here across the board, you know, a number of management areas. Um, the role of, you know, advanced imaging and incorporating that into diagnosis and, man and, and prognostic uh, strategies is emphasized here, you know, in a way that wasn't really before. Um, the, um, the, the strengths and limitations of genetic testing continue to be emphasized. The uh, opportunity for earlier treatment of heart failure and obstructive HCM with surgery and ablation being considered selectively in certain patients, perhaps earlier than what was recommended in the past. And of course, the, the opportunity to, we think more reliably identify high risk HCM patients for sudden death based on a very mature and comprehensive major risk marker strategy um, is very effective. Um, and of course, important recommendations related to physical activity and other um, personal uh, areas uh, is, is also covered. I think kind of very well. So that's that's a quick summary. There are some questions I've been kind of peppering my Q and A to you based on some of the questions that have been posed. Um, there's um, you have a lot of very grateful patients that are here watching too, just so you know. Um, so they they say thank you. Um, okay, I'm just trying to look through here um, in terms of treatment of for transplant the guidelines here are who should be worked up for transplant and then when that care goes to the advanced heart failure team because hcm 
kind of bridges you off and you get managed by advanced heart failure when you go to transplant. So the exact pathway and medications utilized in HCM for the transplant journey are not specifically noted in the guidelines document, just the fact that they should be evaluated at certain intervals and when the EF drops, then they can go to, go to additional care. Um, there's no data um, in the MRI area about specific locations of scar, um, being predictive of any adverse events, um, if I read the document correctly, correct? Right, location, there, there's no evidence about that, that, would, that would support specific location of scar and outcome. It's, it's really more than anything about the amount. I think I covered the question on genetics. There's no, um, there's nothing in the guidelines on particularly pathogenic, or, or malignant, I should say, <coughs> genetic mutations versus benign, correct? That's right. That's correct. Okay. Anybody have questions? Post them right now because we're going to wrap up. In just a minute, we've been, uh, these wonderful physicians have been kind enough to share um, a great deal of time with us today on this topic. It's really important that we have these conversations. And I suspect over the next couple of months, we'll be taking this section by section and spending an entire podcast on a section as opposed to yep. giving you the uh, down and dirty quick, here it is, what do we know today? Um, and that's what we tried to do here. So I'm gonna check, you know, be, doing this at home and with the home computer, I have my trusty cell phone here that I'm scanning through to get your questions. So uh, give me one little second. Harry, while I'm looking for questions and people are populating those questions, uh, from a clinician's point of view, looking at the guidelines document in the in the brief time that you've had to look at it, is there anything that you think is going to change, or is there any areas that you're glad that they addressed, or any general comments? Yeah, I, th I think that from what I've seen, it's pretty reasonable. I, I just I haven't had it. I literally haven't had it for two hours, so I haven't had much time to look at it. Uh, there's a question about a particular location of scar, papillary muscle scar. Um, finding antidotal cases, um, I have 15,000 plus families over 25 years, uh, encompassing probably 50,000 individuals with HCM. Antidotally, I pretty much think I've seen all different kinds of anatomies with good and bad outcomes. Finding one or two or three or five cases of something does not necessarily make it causative of the outcome. Can you comment on that, Marty, about the power of numbers and probability and statistics when looking at issues related to HCM and how we evolve our knowledge? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you, know, it, you know, as I started out by saying, you know, HCMs are really, you know, heterogeneous disease, you know, and so um, that means that there can be a spectrum, a very vast spectrum to what we see. Um, take the example you just raised, you know, the, 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 the scar. Um, one of the reasons that, um, that the location of scar is not related to outcome is that we, you know, for example, we looked at, it was impossible to do that because there's so many different types of scar patterns in HCM, hundreds, that there was no way to, 
you know, sort of group it in a way that would clinically have made sense. Um, that's just one example. Um, and so it's, we always say that anything's possible in HCM that for one individual patient or several individuals, several patients, that one issue, whatever that one issue is, may be the most important issue for that patient and was responsible for an unfortunate outcome for that patient. Um, the question of then taking that observation and then extrapolating it to the entire HCM population is always very difficult to do because it may or may not be true. We just don't know. And um, it, it makes it difficult to make formal recommendations based on um, those the many different permutations that you could see in a patient's heart, for example, here. And so for that reason, we, you know, we're not alone, but in, in, in most areas of cardiology, you know, the, the, the evidence that, you know, the bar is that you've got to put together, you know, large groups of patients and looking at one specific thing over a period of time to determine whether that one variable emerges in the kind of, with the kind of relationships that you would want it to have statistically to show that, that it in fact deserves to be an important marker for the disease in general, okay? So, and that's why there's a real emphasis now on putting together large cohorts of patients with HCM more bigger numbers than we've ever had before to try to, you know, get a better sense of new markers and also the strengths of old markers here to better, more reliably stratify risk in this disease. Okay. And I hope that the future will be better. And maybe some of these things that people are asking about relative to SCAR and other issues, you know, maybe we will have the opportunity to show the evidence that they're important and, and deserving of a different type of therapy than we, know, than we do right now. Um, and I hope that that will come out of the collaborative efforts that are going on among different sites in the US and the world to put together the kind of large databases that we need to have that will have the power to clarify these issues. So one of the questions that was posed is, is um, scarring, is LGE on MRI an independent risk factor? Is scarring on MRI an independent risk factor? Mm -hmm. Extensive amounts of scarring. So when, it's, when there's a lot of scarring, not just the presence, it's not the presence or absence. That's just way too common, okay? It's the amount. So when there's a lot of scar throughout the entire LV myocardium, that can, that can be a risk factor that would prompt consideration to a recommendation, depending on the individual person and the circumstance for primary prevention device therapy. The guidelines, if you want to just talk about it, the guidelines, I think call that a 2B. The language there is that it could be considered, okay? Yep. So that's the answer. It could be considered. You mean the amount of scar? Amount. Meaning that that alone, just extensive scarring alone. On page plot, 14 of the executive summary. That's I think we called it, it could be considered enough to 
to discuss the device. ICD may be considered in patients with yeah. extensive LGE uh, by contrast enhanced CMR. Right. Boom. Right. 2B and the evidence level is a BNR. So it, it's pretty strong. It's pretty strong. Yeah. So, so that's great. It leaves open the opportunity to put a device in only based on the amount of scar. And I, th I think that that's really important that insurance companies need to know about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, this, this document um, speaks to a lot of different stakeholders in the HCM field, not only to the clinicians and to the researchers and to the patients, but to the payer community. And we need them to take this very seriously that we, we're not looking to waste resources. In fact, quite the opposite. We're, we're looking to be good stewards of our healthcare dollars. And we want tests that are actually gonna give us meaningful outcomes. So this guidance gives us that conversation that we can have with payers on a more global scale and hope that we move on uh, to a day where we don't have to keep fighting about what's getting paid for and what isn't getting paid for. I will give an observation. I was looking at the citations at the end. Um, I didn't get a chance to read all of the citations, but I know most of the articles. <coughs> I believe um, somebody named Barry Marin holds the record for the number, largest number of citations in this particular document. I think it's 36. So um, that speaks volumes to the life's work of Dr. Perry Marin in the field of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, for which we are all eternally grateful, especially the amazing work that he has done in identifying risk factors for those who are at risk for sudden cardiac arrest. So I just wanted to give a shout out to the big guy and say thanks. Um, Harry, Marty, any parting comments before we end this part of our discussion on the guidelines, which I said will continue in the coming weeks. But for right now, I think this gave us a good overview. Anything else? Just again to emphasize to, 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 to people out there that it's, it, this is not a um, uh, inflexible document. It, it's going to change over time here. It's not going to be 10 years. It's going to change. It can change you know, as we move forward, as new evidence emerges to support changes that are <clears throat> relevant. So, you know, I, I think the expectation is that, it, you know, as we learn more and as things evolve in this field, the guidelines will reflect those changes real time rather than having to wait another decade. Fantastic. Harry, any parting words? Nope. Okay, guys, thank you for your very patient time today. We went a little bit longer than I had anticipated. To our Facebook community, thank you for joining us and stay tuned for a future episode where we will dig in a little deeper into some of the nuanced issues within the guidelines. Thank you all for your time you. and attention today. Take it easy. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCM Warriors. That's the number 4HCM Warriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4HCM.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today.
To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website, 4hcm.org, and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time.